Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, new COVID-19 modeling shows the number of daily cases, deaths, and patients receiving intensive care will continue to rise and could surge to the worst-case scenario. Should we head a harder lockdown? Well, we'll talk about that. Ryan Ingram joins us. He is a biostatistician with Newmarket Southlake Regional Health Center, and he says Doug Ford got it wrong with the lockdown. And life satisfaction in Canada is at an all-time low. Grant Schellenberg from Stats Canada joins us with all those details. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's look at some hard and fast numbers uh, because here's where the uh, the rubber meets the road. Uh, new COVID data modeling shows that uh, the number of ICU patients in Ontario is about to climb significantly. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some of those details. If Ontario goes into a hard lockdown like France and Australia, the province's COVID-19 numbers could be reduced to 1,000 per day. They're matched with uh, increased testing and increased support to people in those communities where exposure to the disease is highest, uh, we may be able to get down to lower than 1,000 per day. Within 10 days, the number of COVID-19 patients receiving intensive care is expected to hit 300. And a worst-case scenario shows occupancy above 1,500 by mid-January. With lower case numbers, we will be able to maintain safe uh, intensive care unit care for COVID-19 patients and uh, for other patients. COVID-19 deaths are expected to rise, especially in long-term care, where there have been over 630 resident deaths since September. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I I guess the first question is, given these numbers and these projections, which didn't just fall out of the sky, I mean, we've been building up to this, uh, did the government wait too long to respond? Uh, I'm, I'm, do you mean in general, or do you mean by? I mean, I mean this, the, 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 the latest uh, lockdown, doctor. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I watched the uh, the modeling report yesterday at 11 a.m., and I just assumed that Premier Ford would move up the the lockdown announcement from December 24th to today, December 22nd, and I mm-hmm. was really thrown for. I was flabbergasted actually that uh, he extended it to December 26th. It doesn't make any sense. The data is quite clear. The numbers don't lie. Delaying. The lockdown uh, will only lead to further spread of COVID-19, more cases and more deaths. So it, it didn't make any sense to me to start this on December 26th. And it also, I think, Bill, emboldens people to uh, congregate over the next five days because the Premier is essentially giving them a free pass by saying we don't need to take this seriously until December 26th. And natural human behavior will be to say, you know what, maybe we should get together because uh, the Premier says it's okay. Which is a message that could be extrapolated from this. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, know the premier sure take... he didn't say it's okay. Yeah. So he, but he also said that he's didn't want he wanted the businesses in the newly gray regions to be able to get through their inventory. But if you're supposed to stay home, and places are supposed to get through their inventory, I don't understand how you could reconcile those two different messages. Well, my uh, my friend Linwood Barkley, the uh, famous author, I think put it out on Twitter this morning. I don't know if you saw that, Doctor. He says if Doug Ford was the uh, captain of the Titanic, he said the ship is sinking. We'll get to the lifeboats in a little while. Uh, shuffleboard, anybody? It, 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 it just seems as if he's taking the edge off the seriousness of this matter. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, who presented the data uh, that morning, said that one of the most important things is to clearly communicate to the public the severity of the situation so they can act accordingly. I think people will do the right thing if they comprehend the severity of the situation. Many people do, but other people, you know, they're looking for reasons to not follow public health instructions, and this could provide them with a, a logical out in their mind to potentially congregate over the holiday season with people who they don't live with. 
Well, especially because if you want to consider, Doctor, the, uh, the, the kinds of activities that people may undertake between now and December 26th, i.e. going to mall, excuse me, excuse me, going to malls, uh, going to restaurants, whatever the case might be, uh, where the, the, the chances of, of passing the virus on or of, of receiving the virus are, are increased a, a hundredfold, more so than if you were to stay at home. Well, COVID-19 is so pervasive that I assume that everyone that I come close to could be infected with COVID-19. And when you have you know, red regions in between lockdown regions like Halton and then red regions adjacent to lockdown regions like Simcoe and, and York region, and then I guess you know, Niagara as well, uh, people are going to follow the path of least resistance. And that's the outlet malls in those areas to do what they think they should be entitled to do in the next five days. So... I mean, I don't, I don't really understand the logic here because the healthcare system should not be put in a position where, where our back could be broken. We're already under enormous stress, and, and today we exceeded our wave one peak of COVID-19 ICU patients. The wave one peak was 283, and we're at 285 today. 32 patients yesterday, which is the second highest total ever. We will reach 300 by Christmas, not the end of December. And, uh, and you know, if we reach 1,500, which I think would be catastrophic, I mean, the healthcare system collapses anywhere near that. So I just don't really understand the, the method to this madness here. If, if the health and safety of Ontarians is the number one priority, then make it so. Well, and I understand from what I've heard from government discussions, Doctor, that they say, well, we want to try to find a balance because, you know, the first lockdown really crippled businesses, put some people out of business, I suppose, and and it's tragic. Uh, You know, those are hard facts as well. I get that. But what I got from the numbers yesterday, Doctor, and I wanted to get your read on this, is this has gone, we're in a crisis situation here. This is a medical crisis. I mean, this is a pandemic, and I I don't know if we're getting used to it. I hope we're not. I hope we're still taking it as, as seriously as we should be. Well, there's a couple of things at play. I, I mean, I don't pretend to be all-knowing about how people feel about this, but the numbers are so large that it's hard to, to understand what they mean, and most people are disconnected from the people behind the numbers. I'm not disconnected. I see all their faces, yeah. and I see them when they die, but these are real people behind the numbers. And I, I think that the challenge is, is that the longer we delay, and the data showed this, the longer the pain will be. So if we delayed our lockdown from December 21st to December 28th, the 26th is obviously two days earlier, and we continued at 5% growth, right now it's just over 3%, that's an extra 45,000 COVID cases by the end of January. You know, we're tracking just over 2,000 cases per day, so that's an extra 20 days' worth of COVID cases if we delay the lockdown to the 28th. So by delaying the lockdown, the peak of the number of cases will increase, and the amount of time it will take to reach that below 1,000 threshold will also increase, which means that for those businesses who desperately are trying to survive, if you give us five days now, we can save you two weeks on the back end or something like that. And I think that's what's missing from the conversation. And also the thing that's missing that I didn't hear the Premier talk to at all is where is the support for the people who need to isolate? I mean, Dr. Brown mentioned that, that we can shut down businesses, but if people still have to go to work at their factory because they don't have any sick days and they need to pay rent at the end of the month, they're going to go to work if they have a sore throat. That's just, you know, I would go to work. I mean, if you've got to put food on the table and protect your family, you're going to do that. We need to pay people not to work uh, so that they can stay safe. Well, and that 
seemed to be part of the discussion in the springtime, and, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, the models that we can be using here that, that have worked. And, and oftentimes, of course, we refer to New Zealand and Australia who went through this, and both of them, by the way, had uh, very, very stringent uh, lockdowns, of course, which proved to be effective. But it was accompanied, you're absolutely right, Doctor, it was accompanied by financial support, not just for businesses, but for individuals as well. And I know the federal government has stepped up here to a certain extent with, with CERB, uh, but even, you know, the numbers indicate that that's not as, as, as helpful as it is to, it could be to some people i mean i'm not hearing that conversation at all which is really i guess a disincentive for people to say okay i'm going to stay home it's also a disincentive to even get tested in the first place right well number one you have to take time off work to get tested number two if you're positive you're in this pickle where like if i if i'm positive then i can't go to work and um you know if i can't go to work i can't pay rent and i can't even tell my employer that i'm positive and I'm in a work environment which may not be safe in terms of distancing from my work colleagues. So uh, we, we've got this all backwards. We, if we lift up the people who are at the bottom of the economic food chain, we all rise. And I think that's what's been missing. Uh, we have to take care of everybody. And by taking care of everybody, we take care of all of us. Maybe you could uh, explain uh, to our listeners, Doctor, what these numbers actually mean. Uh, I, I think you made a very valid point a couple of minutes ago where th these are large numbers. And, and for many people, I guess our eyes just kind of glaze over and said, I, I, I can't even comprehend that. That's, you know, it, so we're looking at this in the abstract. But you, as I say, you and, and thousands of other people are, are on the front lines and you see uh, the counts every day. You see the people that are dying every day. And, and you know, the, the, this was presented yesterday in almost like a mathematical formula. You know, with, this is the number we're at now, and if we don't do this, it's going to go up to this number. And I don't know that people actually follow that, that uh, the 150-bed threshold where surgeries are going to be canceled, uh, that we're, we're very close, as you mentioned, to that once again. Now, this is this is a tipping point for us, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to understand what the numbers mean. So, well, to me, the numbers that, that matter the most are deaths, ICU admissions, and hospitalizations. Uh, case numbers is tricky because it's a function of how many people you test and, and, and which people you test, although the percent positivity is still quite high. But you cannot kind of fake ICU admissions or deaths or hospitalizations. Those are real hard endpoints. So today, 285 patients in the ICU, about 1,700 total. So what does that mean? So what Dr. Brown said yesterday is that of all the ICU patients we typically get in a pre-pandemic state, only about 15% of those patients are quote-unquote elective surgeries that we could delay, uh, people who, you know, who may not need to come to the ICU for sure. 85% of our, of our inputs are not variable. That means these are traumas, these are organ transplants, these are, this is heart surgery, cancer surgery, where if it's delayed, people will die. If you add on top of that COVID-19, uh, it puts us in a situation where we may not have enough nurses to care for all the patients that we need to care for. Beds, bed numbers are meaningless. It's all about nurses. The other thing to take note of is that the total number of beds and nurses to staff them is spread across the province. This is a highly concentrated pandemic. Ottawa is doing great right now. They've got two patients in their entire ICU system with COVID-19. The Scarborough Health System with their three hospitals has more than 30 with COVID-19. My hospital, you know, we have, we're at 100% capacity and almost 50% of our patients are COVID-19 today. Hamilton, it's you know, there aren't as many COVID patients, but Hamilton is a, a resource, as London is, for a number of other geographic areas. They need yeah. to stay open for more complicated things. So if you, if you, just don't, if you don't have the capacity for the non-COVID-related illness that, um, that is elective, that's a problem. But if you start losing capacity or things that aren't elective, that's when people really start to die or get, you know, have their, 
their, their care significantly delayed uh, because of access to ICU beds and the nurses who care for those patients. That's the ICU piece. I can speak to like the human element if you want. Uh, sure. Be helpful. So you know, this came out in other news outlets, but last week we lo- in my ICU we lost five patients in four days with COVID-19. And these are not 90-year-old people with multiple comorbidities from a nursing home. In fact, not a single patient was from a nursing home. Uh, not a single patient was over 80. And every single patient died without their family at the bedside. Some of them had Zoom uh, playing in the room with their family crying through an iPad with strangers holding their hand. That's a death that, uh, that no one should have, and that's the reality of the situation with COVID-19 because most of the family members are case contacts, which means they have to quarantine at home so they can't come to the hospital, or they would be exposing themselves to risk by going in the room. So uh, we recommend them not coming into the ICU because then they'd have to isolate for two weeks and potentially infect other people. And that's a pretty serious thing to have to die alone from COVID-19. You know, we've had multiple patients in their 30s, patients in their 20s with COVID-19. So the narrative that this is a, pa- a disease that only affects elderly people in long-term care homes with multiple comorbidities is a false narrative. There is also another narrative that's going around on social media right now that, look, at, we haven't defeated this yet, but we've tackled it. And, we, you know, it's, I think some people are referring to this as a treatable disease. How would you respond to that? I've never felt more powerless in my life as a physician. Um, I can't do anything for this. I'm being completely straight with you, Bill. So we can use dexamethasone, which is a steroid that is shown to have some mortality benefit. But otherwise, I'm just watching people and hoping that they can pull themselves through. We support their bodies as they try and heal from COVID-19, but there's not much else I can do. Literally, I, uh, there's, you know, there's no, I will have a, the same patient for seven days and not make any changes to their medications uh, because there's nothing I can do to help other than treat other complications that come up. So to say that this is treatable um, doesn't make any sense to me as someone who treats this. Uh, you know, this. This is something that I feel powerless to fix, and it's really up to people to heal themselves, and we support them as they do that or try to do that. And as, as somebody walks in with a positive diagnosis, is, is there any way at all that you can determine just how it's going to manifest itself inside that person's body? Yeah, I mean, because some, some people are mild, some people end up in ICU, some people are on ventilators. So, you know, I only see one end of of that spectrum uh, because there are lots of people. I think that's the challenge with this disease because it's not so fatal that it scares people, but it it can make a certain number of people so sick that it has an impact on the healthcare system and, of course, those patients and their families. I think if this had more drastic health care consequences or caused symptoms that were more dramatic, then people would be more scared and their behavior would adjust accordingly. Uh, we also don't know how long people will have symptoms of COVID, even if they do survive. It could be months or years that they suffer the consequences of having COVID-related uh, illness. But for the patients that, that I see, there's two main phenotypes. A phenotype is kind of, uh, you know, characteristics of the case. So there's one group of patients who never need to be intubated or choose not to be intubated, or we don't offer intubation because we don't think they'll survive, who... Um, stay alive on something called high-flow nasal cannula, which are nasal prongs that deliver oxygen at a really high rate. They spend much of their time on their bellies because that's the way that they can actually breathe better. And I've had patients hold on in that circumstance for seven, eight, nine days. Many of those patients will get better, but the ones who never turn the corner, they stay in that state of kind of running a marathon that they haven't trained for, breathing 30 to 50 times per minute until their bodies fail and they die. Then there's the other phenotype of patients who develop multi-organ failure. So all their systems break down, their kidneys, their liver, their lungs. 
their blood pressure cannot be maintained even with sophisticated medications, who die kind of a catastrophic, precipitous death where nothing we do can help. Uh, and then there are the patients, of course, who get better, um, who do tend to be younger. I'd say if you're younger, you have a better chance of getting better. Uh, but it's, it's hard to know from the outset which category those patients are going to fit in, but it does become quite clear after two or three days of treating them. Uh, well, if those descriptions uh, that our listeners just heard are disturbing to them, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you heard them because I think it, it, we have to understand the severity of what we're dealing with. Uh, doctor, we've got to leave it here for now. We're just about out of time on this segment. Thank you again so much uh, for your, your time today, and uh, thank you for the great work that you and your staff are doing. Uh, I hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, we got a lot of work to do to get there, don't we? Yeah, if everyone could stay home over the next four or five days, it would really help us in the hospital, so please do that. Thank you. Okay. Take care, Doctor. Take care. Bye. Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at uh, Michael Garrett Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Provincial announcement yesterday is uh, drawing a lot of fire on Ontario's decision to begin its province-wide lockdown on Boxing Day instead of, well, maybe today, uh, is facing severe criticism from health experts and political opposition. Blake Lambert has the details. The Ontario Hospital Association had called for strict new measures. It says the December 26th implementation date sends a confusing message about what people should and shouldn't do at this crucial moment. Opposition NDP leader Andrea Horvath accuses Premier Doug Ford of caving to pressure from big box stores. Ford defends the decision to wait until Saturday to impose the restrictions noting that hotspots are already in lockdown. He says the government wants to give newly affected businesses the opportunity to hunker down. Blake Lambert, the Canadian Press. All right, so let's analyze this and uh, let's get some folks in here who can actually make something of the numbers that uh, have been presented, uh, not just by the Premier, but by the health experts. And uh, to do that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Ryan Imgren, who is a biostatistician and teacher and uh, always a, a fabulous resource when it comes to kind of cutting through the, the murkiness here and trying to find out exactly what's happening. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Good to have you back in the program today. Thank you for having me. I uh, saw your tweets. Uh, you've got some concerns about the, the government announcement too, don't you? Yeah, I certainly do. I think one of the biggest ones that I have is the fact that this is starting uh, December 26th. I mean, I understand the whole retail angle. Let's be clear about that. But I don't know any retailers that will be working through December 25th you know, uh, making sure that, you know, they can pivot to online, whatever else. There's no reason that this could not have started at the latest December 24th. I mean, frankly, this should have been announced Friday, effective Monday, but there's no reason it should have gone after the 24th. Absolutely no reason. That's one of the things that I, I find just quizzical here. And this is not new data. I mean, this doesn't just fall out of the sky on Sunday evening. Uh, they've been working up to this. We've seen the progression in the numbers in the last little while. But all we got on Friday, if you recall, when we had his daily conference, was a tease that, well, we'll have more details later. They already knew what the details were. Why didn't they just say it then? 100%. I think they were just, you know, like ironing out some of the details. But you're absolutely right. They knew on Friday exactly what was coming. There was no reason this... They couldn't have been announced on that Friday. Um, but that's the, the communication piece. And I think that's the most important thing in any lockdown. And actually, Dr. Steeny Brown yesterday, who was doing the like, modeling yesterday morning, he also made that very clear, too. Like, communication is key in any lockdown. People need to understand the data, and they need to understand what you're asking of them. That announcement yesterday from Ford did none of that. 
Well, you're a numbers guy. I mean, you can look at stuff like this. And, and we were just talking about uh, this with Dr. Werner just before you joined us here, uh, Michael, Michael Werner from uh, Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, and uh, you know, this, I, I think I used the phrase tipping point with these numbers because uh, you can look at this from a mathematical standpoint and say when we reach this threshold, for instance, with hospitals, we're in crisis. We're, we've already exceeded the numbers uh, where we should have had a shutdown probably a week before we actually did. Right, exactly. And I think we need to understand that right now we're responding strictly to hospitalizations being at the capacity. We saw modeling a month ago that showed we'd be at exactly where we're at right now in terms of hospitalization. I think the one thing to keep in mind is that we're still seeing record numbers of COVID cases released every single day. And hospitalizations typically lag from the cases reported by around two to three weeks. So we're going to still see hospitalizations tick up for the next two to three weeks, despite this lockdown. Just if you can, I, I'm not asking you to do something off the top of your head, but relate this number that we've seen with the number of new cases uh, to the where we were in July and August. Yeah, so in, um, you know, so in like July, for instance, we had a reproductive rate of around 0.9. So 100 cases was leading to 90 new cases in approximately four days. We were seeing around 50 cases per day. Um, back at that time. But then around, you know, so following that um, civic holiday in August, we started to see our reproductive values go up to 1.1. Now, that doesn't sound like a big jump from 0.9 to 1.1, but it is a significant jump because it means basically with a reproductive value of 1.1, that in one month, your cases, your daily cases will actually double. And if you maintain that value of 1.1, you're just constantly doubling your number of daily cases and then you get to a situation that you're at right now. We have not really had a reproductive value under one um, since about the second or third week of August. So can you assume from that then, I mean, if, if we're above one, as we have been for so long, as you mentioned, that if you test positive and you, with that ratio there, it, you're almost guaranteed that you're going to actually get transmitted to somebody else as well? Yeah, you know, you're in a uh, situation now that in terms of the actual risk analysis, it's showing um, in a lot of these regions that if you just have 50 people in a like building that you're set to uh, that, you know, it's a, it's about a 50 percent chance in some of these regions that in a group of 50, you're going to transmit COVID to somebody else. And I think that was the other big miss with the announcement yesterday was the fact that some of these supermarkets are still able to be open at 50 percent capacity. And if you work out what 50 percent building capacity is in some of these places, you'd be absolutely shocked and you'd they probably stay home. Well, and we've heard those examples already. I mean, you know, if you want to go to the extent of calling Costco, for instance, a grocery store, I know you can buy a lot of other stuff there too, but the, the lineups that I saw and the pictures that I've seen from inside those stores is ridiculous, and, and they're going to be allowed to stay open. Exactly, and that's the issue, is that if a building is 150,000 square feet and one-third of that is shelves, 50% capacity is 1,800 people. And just imagine... Any store that has 100,000 square feet having 1,800 people in it. And I think the issue with these supermarkets, too, is that it's not a like quick trip, as you were saying. We're seeing lineups. We're seeing individuals dwell there for a very long time. And when you have high density and also large dwell time, you're going to see COVID transmission. Well, yeah, and I know that, uh, and I guess we're going to get back to this situation now, too, where actually you, uh, you have to queue up in one spot after you do your shopping to actually go to the cashier and pay for things, and grocery stores especially. Uh, that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I went to a, a local Fortino's uh, here in Ancaster, and they were they were 
all the way down. The lineup went all the way to the, to the side of the store and then all the way down to the back of the store and, and then about, oh, about another 10 or 15 people. Uh, and I know they're supposed to social distance, but, you know, they figure, oh, I'm a buggy away or, oh, you know what, uh, it's okay. And I just, I was shocked at the number of people that were just, now they had masks on, but they were just kind of basically saying, oh, we don't really need to do that anymore. And that's, that's really the wrong attitude to take. And while well, we're seeing the result of it, the numbers you're just talking about. For sure, absolutely. And I think we also need to see, too, that some individuals don't wear masks properly. They don't have the nose covered, and that's very important to have the nose covered with your mask. I think the other thing, too, that um, you know we also don't uh, see is that masks are not 100% effective. They're basically stopping your drops from hitting other people about 85% of the time. So they're not 100% effective. So even with those masks, you're not fully protected. It's a very, very good thing to have, but it's, you know, not effective enough that we should be able to uh, have 1,800 people inside of a 100,000 square foot selling space store. What's uh, what's your read on uh, on the, this policy that was enacted yet, or not? It hasn't been enacted, but announced yesterday, vis a vis schools, uh, secondary and elementary schools. Kind of a different set of rules for both, and some suggesting that they've kind of fallen short here too. Yeah, they certainly have. I think it was right to shut down secondary schools for. Uh, Three weeks. Um, I mean, you know, with that being said, I don't know why we had to give it a like, definite like, timeline, but, you know, three weeks for secondary, I think that should be decent. It allows four weeks for, these, for this lockdown to have an effect, and then it can be revisited at that time. For only shutting down elementary for one week, it doesn't really make sense. You know, we have shown uh, like countless times that when we do asymptomatic testing, we find the like, COVID cases in about 1% of the population. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. But if you extrapolate that out to the student population in Ontario, you've got about 20,000 cases of that you'd find through asymptomatic testing at any given time. And yet we've only ever caught 6,000 cases in Ontario. So that just shows you how many silent spreaders we have in schools. And we can't forget, too, that at a lot of elementary schools, we have students that are unmasked in the JK through grade three. This is something that's confused an awful lot of people, though, because it, when we hear the government numbers on this, they say, hey, we're doing a pretty good job in the schools. The numbers are way down. Uh, but your, your numbers seem to indicate that, no, that, that they're unreported cases. 100%. And I think, you know, we can absolutely see that there's uh, like unreported cases. Like the fact that just asymptomatic testing shows 1% of students have it, that means that, you know, even just a snapshot right now, we're looking at like 20,000 students. And if we've only ever caught 6,000 in September, we are missing so many cases inside of our schools. But I think that comes back to our screening tool, which I hope that when schools get to restart again, that we improve the screening tool, that we make sure that we keep COVID out of the schools, that we need to be very, very clear. If you have these symptoms, you need to get tested. We do not want COVID back inside of our schools or else we've ruined this whole lockdown. You've uh, studied other jurisdictions uh, and, and looked at what they've done, Brian, as well, to understand just, and some of them done quite effectively. Why, when they announce something like this, well, let's, let's stay with the school thing for a second, did they put a limit on it? Why did they say two weeks or four weeks? Why, why shouldn't the, the, the rationale here be until the numbers go down significantly for us to feel comfortable? That might be five weeks. It might be two weeks. We don't know that yet, really, do we? For sure, and you're exactly right. And I think that's what we did back in March and April. And I was very... Um, you know, satisfied with the, the government's response back in March and April, aside from long-term care facilities, that's a whole other story. But just mm-hmm. in terms of what they did here in Ontario, we started with very stringent restrictions and we just set them in place. We didn't give anyone a like, timeline of, you know what, next week we'll explore this, next week we'll explore this. It was 
here's what we're doing. And when you don't give people that, you know, sort of like, um, like endpoint, you get people highly invested in doing the right thing. And I think you can bring numbers down like they have in Ottawa. Like Ottawa did a fantastic job. They had super, super high numbers and they're sitting in a very, very good spot right now. Yeah, they were actually one of the bad boys in those early days. When you look at the numbers, I kept talking about Toronto, Ottawa, and, and Windsor as the uh, the three bad spots, and Ottawa is a, a shining example of that right now. And I know from following some of my media friends up there, I mean, the, you know, the mayor and, and others took a lot of heat for those things, but uh, it, it does bear fruit when you're going to do something like that, and you have to be stringent about it. See, my, my, my feeling is, th- is this. If you say it's going to be for two weeks – then you're probably your motivation is to suck it up for two weeks and say, okay, I, you know, I can wait for two weeks. But if your motivation is we're not opening them again until you're, you know, we think the numbers are going to make us feel safer, you're going to do what you can to start to feel safer. I mean, you you are going to follow the protocol, and and, and because you figure the the more I do that, the sooner that that opening is going to happen again. There's, there doesn't seem to be any motivation uh, behind the government's initiative here. One hundred percent. You need people highly invested in what you do. And I think, you know, I can understand the like timeline for the like, school piece because, you know, we do need to make sure parents understand when students will be going back to school, especially at the elementary level. Yep. But, you know, having the whole like, like time piece on everything else, it doesn't make sense. We don't know for sure that the numbers will go down. I expect them to go down, but I'm worried that when we reopen elementary schools that following two weeks after that, we're just going to have a reproductive value back around one and we're going to see no significant impact. And then hopefully... Um, you know, we don't, but we may have to do this again in March or April. What are the hot spots? And I don't, I don't mean the cities. I mean, those are pretty easily identified when you look at the numbers. But what are we doing wrong or where are we going that we shouldn't be going? Uh, I mean, we keep hearing that it's uh, social gatherings. And uh, I, I don't know that there are too many people having parties of 40 or 50. I, I've, we've heard of some of them, grant, uh, grant you that. But is it, is it is it the restaurants? Is it the bars? Is it the shopping centers? Is it the supermarkets? Where, where are we going that we shouldn't be going and spreading this? Yeah, so worldwide studies um, that have explored non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, such as lockdowns and so forth, look at the most effective things we can do. Um, one of them was to move schools online, which at least here in Ontario, we've done. Um, the other thing was to ban all social gatherings, which we've also done, mind you, the day after Christmas, um, which makes no sense. Um, and then uh, retail stores, all retail stores, essential and non-essential, move to 20% capacity. So whatever your building code capacity is, you take 20% of that, and that's how many people you can have inside of your stores. Those are the three things that worldwide, when they've explored over 200-plus countries, those three things had the most significant impact, even higher than a stay-at-home order. We've, we've forgotten that element, haven't we? I, I remember one of the phrases I was using on a pretty consistent basis in the springtime uh, during the first lockdown was, uh, you know, the, the more we're apart, the sooner we're going to be together. We don't, we don't seem to buy into that anymore. We don't. And I think that comes down to the messaging once again, that when you have poor messaging, you're going to have a poor response from everyone. And I think that's what it comes down to, too, with this whole December 26th implementation, because, because I can tell you right now, we're not going to have people, you know, um, like listening to what the government says on, you know, like Christmas evening, reminding them that the very next day we go into a lockdown. They're listening to the government now, listening to what they're saying now. And that's when this lockdown needs to be effective as soon as possible. Mind you, I think that ship has sailed. We're going to still see it the like, 26th. It's just like too late. And it allows COVID to spread for another five days, which is a really big problem. 
you know, in the Christian world, I don't want to go deeply into this, but, uh, you know, when you get into Easter time and there's what they call Lent, which is supposed to be a time, Ash Wednesday, and then Lent, you're supposed to give up stuff, you know, and sacrifice or, or fast or whatever. The day before that is called Fat Tuesday, and specifically because you know that you're going to have to give up something for 40 days, so you splurge. And I get the same thing that may happen on the 24th and 25th here. We know that there's going to be a lockdown on the 26th, so we want to jam everything into those two days, whether it's going to be family for Christmas or visiting or whatever the case might be. I, I think we're being naive if we think everybody is going to stay at home and just uh, stay with the people under their roof. Well, exactly right. And I mean, under the like current rules, you don't have to stay home. You have to wait. You know, it's effectively like 26. So, so to say to people, don't gather on the 25th, but we're going to ban gatherings the very next day, but still don't do it the day before. That's a really big problem. And I guess because of that, and I, I know that sounds cynical, but I'm just going by past experience here and what we've seen happen in the past. Uh, every time there's been a holiday during this pandemic, whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's July 1st or whatever the case might be, there's a spike two day, or 14 days later, two to 14 days later. Uh, and we can anticipate that, which I guess is why uh, when we were looking at the numbers that they were projecting yesterday, Ryan, uh, they were talking about uh, even if we all just suck it up and do this, we're going to see an increase anyway because not all of us are going to do this and there's going to be a spike probably just after the new year 100 percent. we have seen that all the time in fact even um you know with uh labor day the august civic holiday um victoria day uh thanksgiving and even surprisingly also halloween we saw a spike in cases mm -hmm. in the, um in the like days following halloween as well so it's you know every single time that we have people gather even if we encourage them to gather properly outside we're going to see cases spike and when you have messaging like this we're going to definitely see cases spike around January 1st, January 2nd, um, and then hopefully it's going to come down after that. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there, there are jurisdictions that are doing this right, and I'm not so sure that, uh, that that's happening here in Ontario right now. I, uh, my biggest complaint has always been that they seem to do things almost in half measures, and then they're you know so dumbfounded that the results aren't what they want them to be. Uh, but you know, as you've always been saying, the numbers are there for us, and the numbers tell a story. Ryan, thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with us and trying to see through and uh, sift through some of the, the rhetoric here to get to the real facts on this. I really appreciate it. And if, uh, we're not talking again. Uh, best of the season. Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. Take it easy. Take care. Ryan Imgur, Bye. biostatistician and teacher, uh, giving you the real hard facts and the real story about what's going on with these numbers. And it is a pretty scary story. And when you hear doctors talking about being at capacity, and that's happening, you remember the stories we saw back in the in, in the springtime in some of the cities in the states? New York, remember they had to get a, a ship, a big ship, a hospital ship to come in there because there were not enough hospital beds in New York City. In New York City. And, I, well, I don't know if we have the uh, ability to do that sort of thing in Canada, but, I mean, the, the major cities are singing that same song right now, that if there's another major spike, they're not quite sure that they have the accommodation for everybody who might get ill. That's pretty scary stuff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about how we are handling the pandemic, the impact that it's had on us. It's been a heck of a year for, for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And uh, Stats Canada has got some numbers about exactly how we're handling this and how the, the pandemic and the, the life around the pandemic is, is having an impact on our lives. Grant Schellenberger is an analyst for Stats Canada, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Grant. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning. Glad to be here. So how are we holding up here? How's the, how's the pandemic? Are we, are we depressed? Are we anxious? What's, what's, what's the mood of Canadians? Uh, it's, to say the least, it's, it's pretty down, as one would expect, given the, uh, the year we've had. 
uh, you know, the pandemic's had a lot of impact on the lives of Canadians, you know, job loss and financial challenges, concerns for people's health and health of family, the stresses and strains of working from home and so on. So the objective of our study was to look at the combined effect of all of these changes on how people assess their satisfaction with their lives. It's a, an umbrella measure of well-being, so to speak. And we asked them a simple, uh, single question on a couple of surveys. Uh, we asked, you know, using a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 means very dissatisfied and 10 means very satisfied, how do you feel about your life as a whole right now? And we had data from 2018 that provides a benchmark. And then we asked folks that question the third week of June uh, 2020, about three or four months into the pandemic. And we were able to draw comparisons in their life satisfaction pre-pandemic and uh, sort of during that first wave of the pandemic. Well, I got to imagine the differences are rather stark, aren't they? They, they really are. Uh, what we found is if you looked across Canadians across the 10 provinces, average life satisfaction in uh, 2018 was 8.1 on the 0 to 10 scale. So a little over 8 out of 10 on that scale. Uh, in June, that number was at 6.7. So it had declined by 1.4 points on that scale, which on that scale is a, is a really big decline. And just to put it in slightly different terms, Bill, you know, in 2018, 72% of Canadians rated their life satisfaction as 8 or above, and in June it was only 40%. So, again, a, a really uh, market decline. I guess that's not really surprising, is it, Grant? Because when you look at, the, you know, this year, COVID has had an impact just on just about every facet of our lives, hasn't it? It could be employment, it could be relationships, it could be travel. I mean, you name it, and, and it's been affected by this, this virus. Uh, and that's exactly it. I mean, one of the things about this life satisfaction measure is it, it captures a lot of these factors. So if we look at the effect of unemployment, you know, we see unemployment is negatively correlated with life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. But the importance of social ties and, and connections with others, uh, trust in the people around us, uh, financial security, all of those things matter. Mobility as well. And, of course, all of those things have been impacted uh, over the last year. What about demographics? Because uh, I know you break it down by age as well. Uh, younger people, uh, retirees, uh, you know, as you said, those in, in the middle, uh, working, I guess, you know, that, that are just having, a, I guess, a, a a hell of a bad year when it comes to to what we're doing here. I mean, for the, the older demographic, there's the concern about uh, you know about income, about pensions. Uh, the younger people, uh, I mean, let's face it, are usually optimistic because they figure, hey, the future's ahead of us. How how's how's this breaking down demographically? In the two groups really stood out in the analysis. Uh, the first group, as you've, as you've mentioned, has been young people. Uh, you know, back in 2018, what we typically find is. Uh, that life satisfaction is pretty high among people under 35. It tends to be a little bit lower people middle age, and then it rebounds in, uh, in older age groups. Uh, what we found between 2018 and June 2020 is the declines uh, among youth were, were by far uh, larger uh, than those in older age groups. And so, uh, again, you know, during the pandemic, 
life satisfaction was lower among young people. We define that as 15 to 29 years of age. Uh, it was lower than, than all the older age groups, and we've never seen that before, uh, so particularly striking in that group. Uh, the other group that really did stand out in the analysis uh, was uh, immigrants. Uh, we only had limited information on this, but of course life satisfaction declined among everybody, um, among the Canadian-born certainly, uh, but it declined more among immigrants, and, and immigrants from Asia, for example, stood out in that regard. So certain demographic groups appear to be uh, particularly affected. Well, I would imagine because lifestyle has been altered, right? I mean, you know, if you're a new Canadian, you've got expectations of what uh, what your life is going to be in this country. And for a lot of them, it was just sitting at the same four walls staring at them for the last eight months. That's got to be a little depressing. Yeah, I mean, there's both economic as well as social factors here. So, for example, uh, you know, we looked at both unemployment rates uh, for individuals as well as regional unemployment. And and that has a big impact on the overall decline in life satisfaction. But we also know for recent immigrants, you know, job loss among uh, more recent immigrants as we went through, you know, March, April, May, uh, were larger for uh, new immigrants. They tend to be employed in lower paid jobs. They have shorter job tenures uh, in certain sectors and so on. So, so the economic side certainly uh, uh, took its toll. Uh, the other factor is we ask people, do you fear um, being uh, the target of unwanted behavior because you're viewed as putting the health of others at risk. And immigrants from Asia were two and a half times more likely to say they, ex- they ex- express concerns of, or fears uh, about being the target of unwanted behaviors. And, and that was strongly negatively correlated with life satisfaction. So testifies to both the economic side of things as well as the social side of things. Grant, what about the uh, the gender difference, or was there a gender difference between men and women and how they viewed this? Well, we were really expecting to find a gender difference in this for, for quite a few reasons. Uh, when we looked at recent evidence over as the course of the pandemic went on, uh, women were uh, more likely than men to uh, uh, rate their mental health less positively. Um, and, you know, we've also heard about the she session, as it's been called, in terms yeah. of the impacts of, of of labor market impacts on women, as well as the perhaps the uh, uh, what they shoulder in terms of having young children at home and getting kids registered in school and, and on all of those other things. So surprisingly, we didn't find uh, a significant difference uh, in life satisfaction among men and women during the pandemic. Uh, we looked within age groups and we didn't find it there either. So that was a bit unexpected, and I, I, I'm hoping to go back to new data that comes out in, you know, that we're collecting this fall uh, to see whether we're missing something. Yeah, that's surprising because the, 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 I think we know anecdotally anyway that there's usually an attitudinal difference uh, between, I, I think women tend to be more optimistic about things. Uh, and and if, if, you know, I, I don't know if, if, if they've fallen or if men have gone up uh, with their expectations, it's, it's going to be good. But that's, that's one of the nice things about talking with guys like you, though, Grant. I mean, this is, this is a, a very uh, fluid situation. I mean, this is not the hard and fast data. This was the data from here. Now, and you're collecting more data as we speak uh, to see how we're progressing or, or regressing, I guess, as the case might be. Absolutely. And I mean, one. so we've got that first data point from June. It was a fairly small survey, but StatsCan continues to field, get uh, surveys into the field. We're collecting by telephone, online responses, and so on. And so data collection on, on many topics, but including the life satisfaction, uh, we're collecting from August through to December. 
And, uh, of course, we'll continue to do that collection into 2021 and beyond. And so I think one of the key things here is, uh, you know, how has life satisfaction fared as we go through September, October, November into the second wave of the pandemic? And hopefully as we move through this, will we see a rebound in the well-being or life satisfaction of Canadians as we start to get to the other side of this pandemic? Well, and that's going to be interesting. I, I look forward to our next conversation once uh, you extrapolate that data and, and start making some uh, some evaluations about it. Because I mean, it's it's been a long year, and and you're right. I can expect you know that maybe things might have been looked up a little bit in the summertime because we saw the cases go down, but uh, we seem to be right back into it now with some of these high numbers. And I'd be fascinated to see uh, just how Canadians are responding to this. Uh, Grant, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, you uh, always paint a, a fabulous picture and, and a very clear picture as to how Canadians are doing and how they feeling about some of the key topics. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me. Take care. Grant Schellenberg, analyst for Stats Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.